Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. Priya Dunti, co-founder and executive director of Climate Change AI, which is a global nonprofit initiative to catalyze impactful work at the intersection of climate change and machine learning. Priya earned her PhD in 2022 in both the Computer Science Department and the Department of Engineering and Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University, and she'll join the faculty of MIT's Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department this fall. So I love talking with all of our Resources Radio guests, but I'll admit I've particularly been longing for a conversation on this topic, that is artificial intelligence and climate change, for some time now, and I am pretty darn excited about this opportunity to get a few of my questions answered. And I will admit I have many questions, given the what I would consider vast promise and peril of artificial intelligence. So Priya and I will talk terminology, algorithms, and really some of the incredible ways in which machine learning is being applied to climate challenges. So stay with us. Hi, Priya. It's really great to talk with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So we always like to start our conversations with what I would consider a more fulsome introduction to our guests. So let me just ask a little bit about you and um, your background and really what drew you to working at this intersection of AI and climate change. I'm really curious how those interests kind of came together in the form of this new climate change AI nonprofit as well. Yeah, so I've been working on the topic of AI and climate change since 2016 or so, but my interests actually started way earlier than that. So uh, in my first week of high school, I had this amazing teacher who actually put aside the first few weeks of our biology class for a climate and sustainability curriculum. And within that, we learned about the fact that climate change is fundamentally a really human issue and one that's disproportionately going to affect the world's most disadvantaged populations. And that really resonated with me and made me want to kind of dedicate my life to working on this. Uh, but I didn't actually know how I would do that. And um, so I kind of, you know, graduated high school, went to undergrad and fell in love with computer science. And at the time, this was a bit of a conundrum for me because I didn't really understand if and how computer science could play a role in addressing climate change. Uh, but luckily, towards the end of undergrad, I stumbled upon this paper called Putting the Smarts in the Smart Grid, which talked about how AI and machine learning would actually be really critical to helping us create next generation power grids uh, that could integrate renewables. And I was hooked. I ended up getting a fellowship to travel for a year and interview people about power grids before starting my PhD working on this topic. And a couple of years into my PhD, I you know, met several like-minded people who similarly wanted to employ their AI and machine learning skills for, for climate action, some coming from the AI and machine learning side and some coming from the climate side. And we realized that there was huge potential to mobilize the broader community around kind of you know, accelerating climate action through the use of AI. And that's how Climate Change AI was born as a nonprofit. Amazing. Yeah. Well, that's great. Thank you for that introduction. And oh boy, as I've mentioned, I 
I, I think I'm in the verge of, I'm in the territory of perhaps overly excited for the opportunity to talk to you about this. Um, but yeah, I always do like to start recordings with some contextual questions. But I think that's kind of especially important in this case, because I think terminology can can be a challenge in this kind of complicated and very rapidly evolving space. So I would love to start with just a little bit of terminology review. And maybe in particular, how to think about the terms artificial intelligence, or AI, as compared to machine learning learning. And then also, are there other terms kind of out there in the world in which you work that our listeners should really have in mind as we start our conversation? Yeah, so artificial intelligence is really it refers to any computational algorithm that can perform a complex task. And these are often, but not always, tasks we associate with human intelligence in some way. So speech or perception or reasoning but not always. Things like forecasting solar power, for example, is not something at least I personally do in my free time. So artificial intelligence, though, is basically any computational algorithm that performs some kind of complex task. And this refers to both symbolic techniques. So you write down a set of rules and get an algorithm to automatically reason over them. And it also refers to data-driven techniques, where you have a large amount of data and you're trying to automatically extract patterns and insights from that in order to then apply it. And so when people talk about machine learning, they're talking about this second type of AI where you're learning automated insights from large amounts of data and applying them in some way. Now, within machine learning, one term that often comes up is deep learning. And so deep learning basically just refers to a kind of machine learning where you're using a specific kind of model called a neural network in order to actually draw these automated insights from data. Okay, so how how important, you know, another term that seems to sort of float around in the data science world is big data. And certainly it seems like volumes of data are really important for, um, for any of the terms that we're talking about here. Is that a fair assessment that this is really about working with large scale data sets as well, that that's really where the benefits of artificial intelligence and machine learning come in? Yeah, so primarily you want settings where you have a large volume of data, though the meaning of large can be subjective depending on the use case that you're looking at. Um, and you want high quality data. The kind of quality of the insight you're going to get from a machine learning algorithm is limited by the quality of the data that you're feeding in. So that quality is really important. And there's also some ongoing work that's trying to figure out, even in settings where you don't have large data, maybe you have medium data, but you have some other kinds of knowledge or insights, for example, knowledge about the physics of your power grid, how can you actually merge those two types of knowledge so you can learn both from medium data and based on the, the existing physical knowledge you might already have? Hmm. Okay, thanks. Well, another one more contextual question here, which is around uh, ChatGPT. So I think a lot of folks, and I'll admit myself very much included, only really started focusing on AI developments with the public release of ChatGPT uh, last November. And so, you know, we sort of talk about ChatGPT as if it's all of artificial intelligence, but it's clearly not. It's clearly one type. And so can you just say just a little bit more about what type of AI or machine learning ChatGPT is. And maybe I'm curious for your opinion, too, on why you think AI really kind of exploded into the public consciousness in a way that all of the other uses of AI that have been around us for many more years maybe didn't. It's a great question. So ChatGPT is a kind of AI called generative AI. And this is a type of AI that analyzes data to learn some kind of, you know, distribution or pattern or structure of that data. 
and then it generates outputs that are meant to seem similar to the data it was trained on. So in this case, you know, ChatGPT was kind of trained on data from the internet, text data from the internet, and it then tries to produce answers that replicate in some way the structure, some pattern in that underlying data. And I think the reason it's really exploded into the, the public consciousness is because of the user interface. Uh, and maybe one way to, to think about this is to, to draw an analogy to the early internet. So, I mean, the internet, the early origins of it existed in the 1960s with the first computer networks. And by the late 1980s, you were able to, you know, send messages or files or read articles, but you still needed to be kind of an expert in how computers and computing worked in order to be able to do that. But when kind of in the early 90s, the first web browsers were launched, all of a sudden you didn't need that deep technical expertise to have the internet be really tangible and usable for you. And I think that the chat GPT interface, so the interface kind of in front of the GPT model is I think what has enabled this to be really tangible and accessible to, to a lot of people. But as you kind of emphasized in your question, I think it's worth noting that this is one type of AI. It's not the entirety of AI. And I really hope that, um, this kind of, uh, leap into the public consciousness serves as an entry point to not necessarily just hopping on the, the bandwagon of this one kind of AI, but using that as an opportunity to really learn about what AI is more broadly and what it's kind of, you know, uh, strengths, limitations and, and risks are and really use it in a, in a principled way across many of our applications. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, this is great. I'm sure we'll come back to these terms throughout our conversation. So it's great to have this baseline. Um, but yeah, let's turn to the kind of more explicitly to this question of that intersection between AI and climate change. And I think you've already hinted at this, but I want to ask you all the same. So as I began to kind of poke around on this topic, one of the, honestly, the very first blogs that I came across was from uh, the Boston Consulting Group. And it had the, what I would characterize as a rather provocative headline of, uh, I'm going to quote here, quote, AI is essential for solving the climate crisis, end quote. Um, so I found that fascinating. They didn't say useful. They said essential, which is a pretty strong claim. And so, um, so I wanted to start by getting your overall sense of the importance of AI to tackling climate change. Where are you in that kind of understanding of how honestly, essential this might be to solving a, a issue as complicated and frankly, as data-driven as uh, climate change. Yeah. So what I'd say is that tackling climate change is an all-hands-on-deck effort, and it's going to require the employment of all of the tools and approaches we have across society. And that includes AI and machine learning. And you know, AI will be essential in some use cases, like Arguably, I think it's hard to imagine how we're going to um, optimize a, an increasingly renewable and distributed power grid using AI and similar data-driven techniques. AI is going to be helpful in accelerating timelines in some cases. For example, it's used to accelerate the process of scientific experimentation for clean technologies like batteries. And there are other places where AI will be a force multiplier, some places where it'll provide a small assist and somewhere it's not useful at all. So I would say that AI is essential, but kind of in the same way that, you know, policy, engineering and other tools and forms of action are essential, where for any of these, we really need to understand where they're needed and just do our best to get those use cases off the ground. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's great. And I think that's kind of an important um, grounding for the rest of our conversation too, which, and we'll come back to kind of some additional questions on that, but um, we will now spend the next 45, I'm just kidding. We're not going to spend 45 <laughs> minutes, but I really would love to give you some, you know, some time to sort of talk through some of the promising applications of AI to climate related challenges that you've seen. And so it was a great grounding again, that you just gave, it's not for everything, but um, I think they're, it seems every day that something new is announced about some sort of promising application. I think you're probably as versed in these as anybody. And so can you just kind of highlight a few examples for our listeners that might show both the the range and scale of some of these solutions that are being proposed? Absolutely. So I want to talk about a couple of different themes where, where AI machine learning can be used and then, yeah, give a few examples of them. So one of these, maybe unsurprisingly, is improving predictions by analyzing past data in order to provide some kind of foresight. So, for example, the nonprofit Open Climate Fix has been working with the UK power system operator, National Grid ESO, to actually implement deep learning-based forecasts of electricity supply and demand. Um, and they were actually able to cut the error of the previous electricity demand forecasts in half, by using deep learning to really take in a combination of historical demand data and weather data and, um, you know, even like video data of clouds moving overhead, just different streams of data and being able to use all of that to, to really come up with a more nuanced forecast. Similarly, there's a, there's a company in Kenya called Selina Wamuchi, uh, and they developed an AI based tool called Kuzi which provides early warnings on locust outbreaks by, you know, again, analyzing many different types of data. So agricultural data, weather data, and satellite data, and gleaning insight from that in order to understand where um, there might be an increase in, you know, climate-induced locust outbreaks. So that's one theme, forecasting. Another one is kind of distilling large unstructured data sources into actionable information. So, for example, the MAP project is using satellite imagery to provide a real-time picture of deforestation in the Amazon uh, by basically analyzing satellite imagery and just figure out where, where deforestation might be occurring. And then you can, you know, enable interventions to stop it. And similarly, in the, in the public sector, um, the um, UN Satellite Center, UNOSAT, they've used AI to do high-frequency flood reporting that have improved disaster response in Asia and Africa by basically analyzing satellite imagery frequently in an automated manner and then giving daily updates on how flooding is evolving. A third theme is AI can optimize complex real-world systems to improve their efficiency. So for example, there are a number of companies that are using AI to kind of optimize the heating and cooling systems in buildings in ways that have shown reductions depending on kind of the numbers you get from different companies of 10 to 30 percent in energy use. And similarly, power system operators and researchers are working to improve the readiness of AI for optimizing power grids to help us integrate renewables. So for example, RTE France runs this uh, machine learning challenge called Learning to Run a Power Network, which validates the use of reinforcement learning techniques for this. And then I guess the last theme I'll talk about is accelerating the process of scientific discovery. So um, the uh, startup AIonics, for example, they've helped battery manufacturers cut down design times by a factor of 10 by basically analyzing the outcomes of past experiments to suggest promising future ones. So 
these are just a couple of examples. And, um, you know, for, for uh, listeners who are interested, I'd encourage you to check out uh, the paper tackling climate change with machine learning that we wrote um, at the, the launch of Climate Change AI and tries to provide kind of an overview and research agenda for, for where AI and machine learning can play a role. And it really has applications across, you know, many climate change mitigation sectors, you know, power, transport, agriculture, and so forth. But also a lot of uses in helping us adapt to climate change and strengthen tools like policy, finance, education that that really support all of that work. Wow. Okay. Um, boy, I once again have a million follow-up questions, but let me try to limit myself here. So um, let me limit myself to two, if I could. So that was fantastic. It's great to hear about those applications. Is there a database? Is there kind of a summary of the way that AI is being used in a way that, say, folks who want to sort of not reinvent the wheel, but essentially learn what other companies, countries are doing can, in fact, understand those applications in kind of a consolidated way and maybe build on the learning that's already happened out there? So that's my first question is how do how do others who aren't actually in these individual developments learn about these types of developments, aside from wonderful podcast conversations like ours? Um, and then kind of a, a parallel question is around um, how this expertise is coming, how this artificial intelligence and machine learning expertise is in fact being embedded in these various other entities. Uh, can you say a little bit more about either of those things? Yeah. So in terms of discovery of projects, so um, one way to learn more about these is um, at Climate Change AI, we um, I referenced this report tackling climate change with machine learning. We also have an interactive summaries version of it where you can scroll through different use cases and applications. Um, and we also run a workshop series at um, the machine learning conferences where people can submit the work that they're doing. And those are also kind of available on our website. So you can kind of scroll through there and kind of get a sense of what the different applications are. And in terms of further aggregation, I guess we're working on it. And so if, if you want to kind of let us know about a use case that you're working on and um, uh, or kind of work with us on kind of trying to consolidate this data and, in fact, exactly make it easier for people to discover use cases and such, we're, we're really happy to talk to people about that. Um, in terms of the kinds of expertise, so there's a combination of expertise needed in terms of, you know, literacy. So what where is it that AI can play a role or, you know, getting a mental model for, for the promises and the risks, but also, you know, implementation capacity to, um, you know, uh, work with the data to deal with the algorithms, but also, you know, social science capabilities to understand what is the broader context in which this, this algorithmic development is happening and what kinds of stakeholders need to be engaged with and how do you audit and evaluate these kinds of algorithms. And this expertise can either be built up, you know, in-house or, of course, um, you know, many entities look to external consultancies and such, though this does create risks of capture or of, you know, certain tech companies or consultancies with more of this expertise driving directions. And so some, you know, healthy mix of in-house capacity and external capacity ends up being um, important. Hmm. Okay, great, great. Uh, so yeah, I, hearing all that, I can tell that even as you approach this with what I would characterize as a fair amount of enthusiasm, um, you've also been very, you know, candid that AI isn't a silver bullet. Both you and your colleagues have written that in various reports. I think that's come across in your comments so far too. Um, so maybe we can talk about that for just a minute. And, you know, it's, it's not a silver bullet. It shouldn't be considered the solution to every single piece of the climate challenge. So maybe, can you give me an example of where AI actually isn't a good fit for solving a climate-related problem? Maybe that would help kind of put this in, in context for our listeners as well. 
Absolutely. So I think there are a couple of places. So one is places where there are fundamentally value judgments that need to be made. I've been pitched before on this use case of, well, what if we could just, you know, write down all of the data that we have in a country and use AI to make our public policies for us? That way we just don't have to do the work. And it's worth noting, right? You know, first of all, that's not necessarily particularly realistic, but also the input data that you put into an algorithm, um, the way you design it has a lot of value judgments laden in it and kind of putting data together and running algorithms on top of it isn't a way to avoid making those value judgments. It's a way to pretend that you avoided making them. And so any place where there are really explicit value judgments that need to be made, um, there isn't the ability in general to just automate away those value judgments. You have to kind of lean into that when doing policymaking, for example. Another kind of place where I think AI is often pitched as promising, but where the picture is maybe less optimistic than that is causal inference. So there are lots of situations where people will be like, oh, well, I implemented a policy. I want to understand, you know, what the causal factors were in making that policy work or not work. Can we throw AI at it? But it's worth noting that AI and machine learning in particular is statistics. So all of the things that you usually hear about correlation um, being something you can capture with statistics more easily than causation apply. And so there are legitimately good use cases of AI and machine learning within broader causal inference workflows, but it's not going to kind of solve your causal inference problem right out the gate. There are also places where sometimes what's needed is automation, but not necessarily AI. So I've started to see some use cases recently where people are basically saying, you know, there isn't a way to... Um, easily gather certain kinds of well-structured data? Can we use GPT to generate that data for us? But often in those situations, the, the correct solution is to scrape that data from trusted sources in an automated way using a web scraper. So there's sometimes where I think the, the interface on recent AI technologies causes it to be used in the case where some other type of automation is actually what's needed, basically. And then, yeah, in general, like, there's some problems that are small data or that need manual analysis or where AI is just part of a bigger strategy. It doesn't make sense to fully instrument your building with, you know, fancy optimization of heating and cooling systems if you're not going to insulate it first. So I think just being cognizant of that bigger context is also important. Right, right. That's great. I'm I'm super glad to have that set of counterexamples, too, because I do think that gives a pretty robust picture of... Um, both the uses and the just where it's not potentially the most most useful tool. So I want to come back to barriers for just a second. We talked a little bit about uh, you know the, where the expertise comes from, and certainly whether there's in-house expertise versus external expertise. I imagine that certainly could be a barrier for some organizations in terms of really taking the most advantage of AI. Um, but what are some of the other barriers that you see to more widespread adoption of AI in the appropriate use cases related to climate change? And maybe I'll, I'll just phrase it another way, too. If you were sort of the czarina, if you will, of this climate change AI universe, what would you actually do to sort of help overcome some of those barriers as well? Well, if I were the Zarina, I would probably just take away the problem of climate change. So oh, we're done. <laughs> but fair enough. In a in a more practical sense, yeah. I think the barriers in addition to um kind of, you know, expertise, literacy, and personnel, it's also, you know, data and data collection systems and digital infrastructure, kind of both 
the literal raw data, but also the computational infrastructure or, you know, the simulation environments for your power grid or your industrial system or your building that allow you to actually test these algorithms out. Um, and in addition, just, you know, as I mentioned earlier, doing this work right requires deep collaboration across different domains of expertise. So AI, climate, uh, operationalization, policy, social science. And so there often isn't enough, you know, collaboration, um, as well as in some cases, just a lack of digital innovation pathways in established industries. So if I, you know, want to create an algorithm for power grid optimization today, it's really hard to actually validate that advanced in technical readiness and actually figure out what that pathway is to deployment on a real system, because we're all often lacking an agreement on how do you actually, you know, evaluate or simulate the the results of these methods? What are the metrics that you need to use to to do that? And, and just sort of that that pathway to deployment and that relevant infrastructure isn't always there. So I think there's a lot that can be done to um, I mean, again, on this expertise aspect, you know, build internal capacity within a wider range of organizations, incentivize organizations to share use cases and data and best practices, you know, create data task forces, have cross-sectoral innovation centers, education. Um, I think there are lots of things like that that, that need to be done. And uh, for those listeners who are maybe interested in digging into some of these aspects more deeply, um, uh, we wrote a report back in 2021 for the Global Partnership on AI that really tries to provide actionable strategies for governments and intergovernmental organizations on, you know, how to align the use of AI with climate action. And in there, there's a bit of a, you know, a detailing of some of these bottlenecks in, in more depth as well. And so, um, I think there's a lot that can be done and, you know, governments, industries, NGOs, I think everybody has a, a role to play in kind of increasing this education and readiness and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm, I'm particularly interested by that question of simulation because you're right. It's not like you can just deploy things that have worked on an intellectual basis on the power grid, for example, without actually testing those solutions. But how do you test those solutions when you don't actually have a a simulation option as robust as the power grid itself. So that's a really interesting point. And then I guess I also wanted to ask if you have seen any forward motion uh, in any of the directions that perhaps you and your colleagues did identify back in 2021. Are some of those kind of collaborations and education efforts starting to take place? Or do you feel like they're still we're still right at the beginning of this? Yeah, so I think there's definitely stuff starting to, to take place, but that in some sense, we are still towards the beginning. So on the education front, for example, um, uh, UNEP, the UN Environment Program, uh, launched this uh, education module on AI and machine learning for climate and the sustainable development goals, specifically aimed at um, policymakers uh, in, in national and international organizations. And so I think it's really great to see that resource out there. And I hope people take advantage of it to kind of increase literacy within their own organizations. Um, and in addition, um, I would say that, you know, there has been movement on creating additional simulation infrastructure. So the, um, I think I referenced earlier, the learning to run a power network challenge by RTE France what they did is not only put out a challenge, but put out simulation infrastructure underneath that challenge to actually enable people to test out what their solutions will look like on a power grid. And they continue to run 
uh, you know, subsequent versions of that challenge where they further mature the, the challenge in the underlying environment. So I think there's definitely some movement here, but I think there needs to be a lot more that happens. And in some sense, a lot of this is the creation of public goods. And so I think some of this has to be from public funding, from uh, public policy, from from NGOs, from organizations that are really incentivized to to kind of create these public goods to then enable a lot of this um, innovation and implementation to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know we're getting close to the end of our kind of substantive portion of our conversation today. Um, so maybe one last uh, content question for you on this topic. And I think I think it's fair to say, you know, the elephant in the room here uh, is the the deep concern that I think has been expressed in by many individuals and across many media outlets around the potential for social damage, maybe even social destruction from AI. Um, and so, you know, there's there are real challenges here, real risks. And so how do you think about taking advantage of the promise of AI while also mitigating those dangers? And then maybe on a more um, specific level, do you think about how individuals who are really consumers of AI as opposed to developers of AI to a great extent, but how can we as individuals think about avoiding some of those pitfalls as well, particularly as we think about applying AI to climate change? It's a great question. Yeah. So when I'd say we, we think about, you know, AI's dangers, I think people's minds go in two different directions when, when they hear that term. So one of those is, you know, existential risks. So super intelligent AI or automated warfare and so forth. But I think what is, is often more pressing and, and widespread is it's, it's clear and present harms in terms of exacerbating biases and inequities through its data or how it's designed or how it's used or its trustworthiness and accountability when it's used in policymaking contexts. Or also its climate impacts, both, you know, its own footprint through hardware and compute, but maybe more importantly, through how it's widely used to accelerate oil and gas exploration and extraction or to increase societal consumption through advertising or to facilitate the development of autonomous vehicles in a way that locks in potentially our dependence to private transportation as opposed to public. Um, so it really comes down to this combination of both, you know, what kinds of applications we work on or enable AI to be leveraged for disproportionately and also how we work on them. Um, and I think in terms of what we do, I think this just uh, as, for example, countries come up with AI strategies, I think there needs to be a deep integration of ethical and climate considerations into those strategies, not just to kind of create a subset of AI for good applications that are done in addition to business as usual AI, but to really shape business as usual AI itself, um, to create, you know, algorithmic auditing and transparency frameworks that really equip people and organizations to do this kind of, you know, thinking both upfront when a project is being developed and, and as a project is being deployed and evaluated. Um, and of course, these regulatory interventions are essential, but, you know, as you're, as you mentioned, individual researchers and organizations need to be thinking about this too. So in some sense, there's no replacement for interdisciplinary and, and cross-functional collaboration where you're really engaging researchers and implementing industries and end users and, you know, affected parties and, and so forth to, uh, to come together and really shape the way in which we're evaluating if work is aligned with these ethical values and, and really ensuring that we're building that in right from the get-go in a project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Well, you have given us so much to think about. Um, 
And you've already mentioned some great resources that folks can uh, check out. We will make sure to list those on the website alongside uh, the recording on RFF's website. But I did want to invite you to offer up any other recommended content, part of our top of the stack closing feature, uh, that you might want to recommend to our listeners. It could be a book, another article, another podcast. So Priya, what's, what's on the top of your stack? Yeah, so there's an article um, from 2017 that I really like. It's called Environmental Justice in the Age of Big Data, uh, Challenging Toxic Blind Spots of Voice, Speed, and Expertise. And what this piece really looks at is what are the implications of the big data era for how we think about environmental justice issues? And in this case, specifically thinking about, you know, measurement of toxic releases and things like that. Um, and I just find this this article is a really important reminder that it is really important to look at what is in the big data that is captured. And we've talked about a lot of use cases where, where AI can play a role in that. But it's also important to think about what is systematically not captured in that data and to make sure that that's included in the narrative as well. Right. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate uh, your taking the time. You've done a great job of talking us through these very complicated issues. Um, and yeah, just a lot of food for thought as this obviously continues to be of high visibility and importance uh, in the in the kind of media ecosystem. And I'm assuming it's only going to grow in importance as time goes on. So thank you so much for this grounding and for your time. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.